This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Despite some of the rhetoric here in the United States, our friends north of the border are moving forward with a cap-and-trade system on carbon in the province of Ontario. They started their new system on January 1st, which will put a cap on the amount of emissions that companies in Ontario can emit. There are some companies that are getting a temporary free pass, but the government in the province hopes to raise $8 billion over the next four years. As for consumers, estimates say that people of Ontario should expect to pay an extra $156 a year from increases to gasoline prices and home heating oil. To take a look at this plan, as well as how it connects to a potential larger plan in Canada in general, we welcome into the studio Wharton's Eric Ortz, Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics, also Faculty Director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership and co-editor of the upcoming book, The Moral Responsibility of Firms. Also joining us on the phone, Trevor Toome, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, and Christopher Reagan, Associate Professor of Economics at McGill University. He's also Chair of Canada's Eco-Fiscal Commission. Eric, great to see you again. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, and thanks, uh, thanks for having me Great to have you both. Uh, Trevor, Christopher, great to have you as well. Thanks for having Great me. to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, Chris, uh, being uh, being there at McGill, the impact of this this move by Ontario will be what? <laughs> well, that's a big question. Uh, first of all, Ontario is not the only province that is doing this. They okay. have a cap-and-trade system that's just now going live, but Alberta has a system uh, which is a carbon tax-based system that is going live at the same time. B.C. and Quebec already have systems. So Canada now has about 80% of the economy that uh, is basically covered by a, a broad-based uh, carbon price. Ontario's is a cap-and-trade system, um, and it is linked to Quebec's cap-and-trade system and California's through what's called the Western Climate Initiative. Uh, the current price on a ton of carbon emissions is about 17 or $18, which translates into about 3.5 or a little bit more cents per litre of gasoline. So for people who think in gallons, that's about uh, 13 cents per gallon. Uh, there will also be that same sort of uh, proportionate effect on, on you know, natural gas and on heating oil, but of course the price is based on the carbon content. So what the effect will be is that consumers and small businesses and big businesses will, will see the price on carbon emissions. They will, over time, be led to reduce their emissions by changing the way they do things. Nobody should look for... Uh, dramatic uh, reductions in emissions over short periods of time. But this is a policy that's being designed not for one electoral cycle, but for a few decades. And so over time, what we'll see, especially if the carbon price rises, is that emissions will fall. Trevor, what has been the impact uh, up there in Canada with the other systems being in place in the other provinces as well? Canada is actually a very interesting jurisdiction with a lot of mixed approaches being done by different provinces and even within certain provinces, hybrid approaches being taken as well. So here in Alberta, as Chris mentioned, uh, we had a carbon tax implemented on January 1st, and that's a $20 per ton of emissions, and that will rise to $30 and then rise gradually still further to $50 by 2022. But that's meant to cover a little under half the emissions here in Alberta. And then covering the other half is another system to deal with 
large emitters, uh, oil sands facilities, uh, power generators, things of that nature will be covered by this this separate system that also puts a price on carbon, and that's currently already $30 a ton. So, so different provinces will take different approaches, and so I think it makes it a really interesting kind of case study for the world to look to, to see how different systems evolve. Uh, turning to Ontario, as Chris mentioned, yeah, we shouldn't expect large reductions in Ontario's emissions as a result of this plan. Some recent analysis by the Ontario government suggests that by 2020, they're looking at about four megatons uh, of emissions to fall as a result of this system, but they will still meet their targets by purchasing from other jurisdictions, uh, primarily California, offset credits. And so they will be buying quite a bit of those in order to uh, meet their objective. But that's actually a, a, an efficient way to go about lowering emissions uh, globally. You kind of want the least cost way to right. do it, and, and those might be in another jurisdiction. Eric, you, you look at this uh, this plan and, and this program that, that the provinces in Canada are putting together, and obviously Prime Minister Trudeau is has an idea that he would like to put in in terms of carbon pricing as well. When you look at this this program as a whole, you say what? Well, I think, you know, to put this in perspective uh, for, for, for listeners, the general problem of climate change is a global problem, right? So yeah. it is a, uh, it's the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions of carbon dioxide from various sources, power plants, others, uh, methane emissions, et cetera. So you have this, the, the, the general, it's a huge problem that's global. And then the question is, what is the best way to try to uh, get a handle on that mm-hmm. and to gradually or maybe not so gradually, if, if you would uh, follow some of the scientists today who really who say we really should be on emergency footing. But how do you reduce that? And then the two main policy uh, alternatives, which have been mentioned, and as is mentioned, uh, Canada has both of them going on. One is what's called a cap-and-trade program, which Ca- California also has, which is a general program. You say you look at the major emitters and you say, okay, you guys all have to reduce by X percentage next year, and you go yeah. forward and you have a general gradual uh, decrease. And then there's a system that pu- is put in place that's an artificial market about that, that if you want to emit uh, carbon dioxide by the ton, you have to pay some price. And that, uh, but it's limited, right? So there's a there's a guaranteed con, uh, uh, way in which the emissions will decline. Now, many economists will argue that that's not as good of a system as a tax, uh, and the reason is, or a charge, if you don't like the word tax, which right. many, which is one of the problems with getting this enacted in many places. But the idea is that you just put a direct price on the carbon that then any any user has to pay the extra fee. And you, uh, the argument is that that's a little bit more. You can argue that that's more efficient because you're directly uh, uh, putting the price of carbon, uh, putting the price on consumers, those who are using it, right. and you're not creating a huge government bureaucracy to uh, create the cap and trade. So there's a debate about which one is more efficient or less efficient, and uh, it's an uh, interesting experiment as the. Um, as the experts uh, we have on are indicating, that Canada now has both of these going on in different places. Studies are starting to be done on the effectiveness of uh, the tax programs in different yeah. uh, jurisdictions. And then uh, also we'll, uh, we'll have the opportunity now to look at cap and trade. And uh, the, other, the other point just to make is that California is the other big fish in this, right? California 
as, as one of the top 10 economies just on its own. It has a very aggressive cap and trade program. It's partnering with uh, provinces in Canada uh, for uh, maybe what could be a blueprint eventually for connecting also with Europe and other uh, other other parts of the world that have these uh, programs in place. So it's a very interesting picture of how this is developing and Canada is uh, is maybe is one of the best study points that we have right now for case studies. So uh, Trevor, with, with the provinces up there in Canada having their own uh, plans in place, uh, what is the likelihood that we could see something come forward from the Canadian government overall from Prime Minister Trudeau on a carbon pricing plan? So they've actually announced just late last year what the federal approach on this file will be. And I think it's quite clever to leave the the provinces, but also help coordinate actions. Right. There's not too large differences across provinces. So what they've done is announced that starting next year, provinces will need to have a minimum price on carbon of about $10 a ton, and then that will gradually rise through time. And you can meet that minimum price in either two ways, through a carbon tax or through a sufficiently stringent cap and trade that has emissions declining uh, to meet our Paris objectives. And if you aren't, uh, if, if you don't adopt as a province one of those two things, then the federal government will step in with a special carbon tax within your province. Mm -hmm. uh, so it'll essentially do it for you. And then with the money raised, it'll return that money to the provinces. So it, it's kind of a stick to uh, ensure that prices don't deviate too much across provinces, to make sure that everyone is taking action together and that we don't have a lot of free riders. And so the federal government is really playing the role of uh, a coordinator here in the country. And I think that's uh, it's a pretty important role to play. And I think it's kind of a, a clever design program. Chris, Dan, this is Chris. Yeah. Can, I, yeah. can I jump in on there? Yep. Because there's something that, that your American listeners may not appreciate in terms of con Canadian constitutional <laughs> politics. Okay. Um, Canada is a much more decentralized federation than is the United States. And so what I mean by that is that Canadian provinces typically have more power over more things than um, than U.S. states do. Right. And the environment is actually a shared jurisdiction between Canadian provinces and the federal government. So that means both, both levels of government in Canada have both the right and the responsibility to act. And when the federal government, when this federal government came into power in October of 2015, we already had four provinces that either had a policy in place for carbon pricing or had announced a policy that was about to come into effect. And so th this is why what Trevor says, the, you know, the feds have really filled in the policy gaps, but they've expressed a very clear preference for the provinces to do it right. and for the provinces to do it in the way that it, it chooses for its own uh, kind of unique provincial economic situation. But they stand ready to fill in the gaps only if the provinces don't do it. Trevor, you've talked uh, in other interviews about the importance of incentives in this process. Uh, go a little further into, into why you think that, the, that they become very important. Sure. So when you put a price on carbon, what you do is create an incentive, a financial incentive for individual households or firms to uh, think carefully about their fuel use and the emissions that they generate. For each ton of emissions that you avoid, you pocket that, uh, say, $30 per uh, ton of carbon that you didn't emit. And so it gives you a real financial incentive to think carefully about this. And so for gasoline, it's uh, 
uh, right now in Alberta and Ontario in about four cents a liter or so that will that will rise in BC it's about seven cents almost per liter and so that means that people will think about how much they drive or how they drive there's also some evidence from BC suggesting people uh, adopt more fuel efficient vehicles and then for large emitters for businesses uh, this can be very important in particular here in Alberta for the oil sands the key way we get oil out of the ground from the oil sands is by injecting steam down into it. And the process of making steam is very emissions intensive. Uh, but you can make it more efficiently uh, with, with different machinery. And so putting a price on emissions really creates an incentive for firms to adopt very efficient forms of making steam. And so it's that financial incentive that really ensures that people will uh, lower emissions where it's economic, where it makes economic sense, and, and not lower emissions when it's very costly to do so. Yeah, and just to put this in some uh, some economic policy framework, the the idea of what you're trying to approximate here with the either the taxes or the uh, or the cap and trade charges or the fees for the emission permits is that you are attempting to account for what economists call the externalities of the emissions. Uh-huh. So. From an economic perspective, it's not that this is we're just trying to solve some problem that's in the abstract. In fact, uh, climate change is causing huge amounts of damage already yeah. and is projected to cost even more. We were talking just before the show about the cost of catastrophes and, and yep. increasing costs of natural disasters. And so what you're attempting to do here is that we're if you don't account for these in your everyday decisions – then you're basically taking a free ride on the environment and on the future. And so you're tempting to, with a, with a price on carbon or, or other greenhouse uh, uh, gas emissions, you're trying to get an approximation of how much is this really costing for the future so mm-hmm. you get the incentives then to reduce that. And if you don't, um, you know, the basic economic lesson is if you don't think about, you know, if you don't, don't think about waste, then you're not going to calculate that into your behavior. And right. so the idea is bring this into an everyday cost accounting way that people will uh, actually change their behavior as the cost uh, rises for this, uh, for, the, for this externality. It's very much the polluter pay principle. Right, right exactly. Yeah. And, and I was going to say, in terms of the money that has been collected already by the other provinces and, and now what Ontario will be doing, that money is, is used for what, Chris? Well, so this is a great question. Um, so you're going to generate a bunch of revenues from, from taxing or pricing the carbon emissions. And then the question is what to do with it. And, and here, again, provinces uh, are different. So British Columbia, which has had a carbon tax in place since 2008, has a carbon tax that is legislatively guaranteed to be revenue neutral. So every okay. year it raises... or $1.3 billion, and that money gets used to reduce personal and business income tax, all right? Um, Ontario has not taken that revenue-neutral position. They've decided that they're going to generate the revenues, and they're going to use some of those revenues. Well, first of all, their fiscal situation is worse. So they need some of those revenues for for kind of keeping the lights on. But they're also going to use some of those revenues to promote um, you know, to promote emissions-reducing activities, to make investments in, in low-carbon technologies, for example. Um, Alberta is going to use some fraction of the revenues that it raises, some to give back to low-income households, yeah. um, which will actually convert a regressive carbon tax into a progressive um, kind of tax and transfer combination. But they're also going to use some of the revenues to actually help out the very emissions-intensive businesses 
um, so that you can kind of offset the effect on their competitiveness. So that's another big issue that we can talk about if you like. Yeah. So, but the short lesson, the, the quick lesson here is that different provinces um, are going are in different situations, and almost certainly they're going to make different choices. And the same would be true of any jurisdiction that raises these revenues. We are joined uh, on the phone by Christopher Reagan of McGill University, Trevor Toom of the University of Calgary, and here in the studio by Wharton's Eric Orts. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you're more than welcome Excuse me, to send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I'd be interested, Trevor and, and Christopher, both of you, Trevor, I'll start with you, to get your reaction. And I noticed it in a few of the articles kind of uh, speaking about this program going on up in Canada, uh, about uh, the future and the relationship with the United States uh, with Donald Trump as president and, and you know, the impact of, of the, some of the statements that he has made about, uh, about, about climate change. Trevor? Yeah, this, speaks, this speaks directly to the issue of business competitiveness and the concern that if we price carbon or take aggressive action on emissions, then our businesses will be at a disadvantage uh, when competing abroad or that consumers here will opt for imported products from the United States. And so what Chris mentioned is that one of the ways in which governments can use carbon revenue is to provide direct support to industry. And so when you put a price on carbon, it will raise business costs to the extent that they use fuel as an input or emit in the process of production. But if some of that money is then returned, think of it as a, as a subsidy on their output, kind of like a rebate to households or something, but two firms, the lower costs on that side. And the net effect of pricing carbon but providing a direct support to industry can actually be fairly small on, on business costs. That's an important way to mitigate uh, that competitiveness concern. Just to put some numbers on it, here in Alberta, uh, we're a very high-emitting jurisdiction, the highest in Canada, even though our economy is not the largest in Canada. And that's uh, to a large extent because of a lot of our power comes from coal, but also because of high-emitting oil and gas operations at the oil sands. And so we're going to uh, price carbon emitted by those facilities, but then return most of that uh, to those firms in the right. form of an output subsidy. So the net effect is an increase in costs of maybe about 50 cents per barrel produced. And so a very modest cost that won't really um, have a, a large negative effect on business investment or competitiveness. And so I think when there's a lack of action uh, south of the border with our, our largest trading partner, we do need to think carefully about how we design policy, make sure we do it smartly, uh, that so, so, the, so that we address the competitiveness concerns, but they can be addressed. Chris, so uh, I think the election of Donald Trump has you know has has significantly changed the political rhetoric and the political dynamic, and it's put a lot of air or a lot of wind in the sails of those people who don't want to price carbon uh, because they can raise the competitiveness issue. But I think the truth is that the that the economics hasn't fundamentally changed before and after November 8th. Competitiveness was always going to be a very important issue um, for Canadian governments, Canadian provincial governments, putting a price on carbon. And this is why the Ontario government, right from the beginning, has been planning to give away some significant fraction of their permits 
uh, to the emissions intensive sector and exactly why the Alberta government is designing the system that Trevor just just described. So, um, you know, the United States wasn't just about to put on a price of carbon and now it's not going to. Right. I mean, there was no imminent carbon price. The, the second comment I would make is that when the, 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 what Trevor just described about making firms face the price but then giving them back cash, this is, I mean, he explained it perfectly, um, but it is a point that's really important that I think a lot of people just don't get because they think, well, if you're going to give some money back to firms, then isn't that just undoing the whole carbon price and isn't that just undermining the entire policy? Right. But it's not. And the important thing is that firms and households are still going to face those that relative price change. So they're still going to find face higher prices for carbon emission, carbon emitting activities. So they're still going to have those incentives to do less of it. But they're then getting, um, you know, kind of cash back in the mail or cash back in a lump sum capacity or connected to output. Um, and so that addresses the competitiveness issue. And this, this combination of two things, I think governments across this country are going to have to explain this a lot. And I know that at the Ecofiscal Commission, we're going to have to spend a lot of time explaining why this combination of two things, the carbon price and the cash rebate, are actually exactly the tools you need to reduce emissions, but not have your firms leave their jurisdiction because of the competitiveness problem. And it's a tough point to make, but it's really important. I think I think these uh, all the points about the complexity of these programs is an important one. There is a risk that if it gets too complicated and they're too, it's too hard to understand for most people that you can lose some of the back, the backing for it in, in, in sort of public uh, public support. Uh, the one one other maybe slight controversy that, there, that I think is out there though is is there is a danger, and I don't know the Alberta exam. I haven't studied that ex- exactly yet, but I know that in the U.S. case when there was a cap-and-trade uh, program that was moving forward actually on a bipartisan basis. There was a problem actually when you started to grandfather and carve out like the coal industry, carve out the right. steel industry, et cetera. Right. And, at, and at one point, the envir- some of the environmental uh, uh, environmental groups just peeled off and said, well, we're not in favor of this anymore, right? Yeah. So right. There, is a, there is a balance there mm-hmm. that you have to look at. And so on the one hand, you have uh, these exceptions made for maybe tar sands, et cetera, although that's pretty controversial from an environmentalist uh, perspective. But you, you have some carve-outs that are legitimately made as a political compromise to keep jobs over the short term. You don't right. want to just have a massive tax right. that just wipes out a bunch of jobs. You lose to all the legitimacy of the, right. of the program. So you need to have a gradual shift. At the same time, you can't have it start to look like it's a corrupt uh, a game right. where uh, the oil companies and the coal companies are, are, are basically carved out and everybody else is somehow paying the freight uh, for them. So well, I think there's a, there's a balance there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just add one thing to that, though. Uh, so the words carve-out suggest to me an exemption. And I think for, for the reasons we just heard, an exemption is, is a bad idea. It's a yeah, bad I was talking idea. about the U.S. case, actually, right. not, okay. not the but, current case. But, but there are some exemptions as well in the Canadian systems. And I think as a general rule, exemptions are bad because, mm-hmm. number one, it's bad politically because it, it then suggests that we're not all in this together. Right. But it also means that there's a sector of the economy that doesn't actually have to reduce emissions. There's an important difference between exempting a sector or a firm and actually giving them free permits. When you give them free permits, they're still facing the incentive to reduce their emissions, but they're getting this cash value. And, and I agree completely that that also creates some 
kind of political optical issues, and it's tough to explain. Um, yeah. But I, I, I think it's really important that governments minimize, down to zero, I would suggest, exemptions, but think very carefully about the design of these policies that involve these two-part uh, pricing and cash, cash rebates. Trevor? Yeah, yeah. just to jump in there. So every jurisdiction here does have exemptions. Here in Alberta, actually, we had a, a recent exemption brought in that wasn't part of the original plan only a couple of weeks ago for greenhouse operations in Alberta because it, it really did lead to a lot of political pushback and pressure as some of the greenhouses here announced that they were going to close in the, in the face of the carbon tax. And so, yeah, the politics is real and important. Yeah. But so long as these measures are transparent, uh, and temporary. I think that's that's critical. Certainly when you bring in a new program, there's some, you know, pretty valid justification to provide industry support, but as, as Chris mentioned, not exemptions. Provide support that doesn't undermine the incentive of the carbon price, but then also through time, uh, gradually phasing out these. So we should think of right. them more as transitional assistance. And then as the world as a whole collectively does more than the need to provide direct industry support will be lessened. Is is that one of the Trevor? Is that one of the issues that maybe a lot of people that that are kind of looking at this from the outside don't kind of get that that there is a level of fluidity to it, and it's not always just strictly just black and white. Yeah, I, I think that's even important, not just from people looking on the outside, but even from within, as debates right. among populations within jurisdictions that put a price on carbon try to understand. The, the policy. So even household rebates, you know, we provide a fixed lump of money to low and middle income households here in Alberta. So about two thirds of people, sorry, two thirds of households will receive this rebate to cushion the blow and, and one third don't. And I think there's a broad impression that if you're receiving a rebate, then you don't face the incentive of the carbon price. Right. But it's not a refund of taxes paid. It's just a lump of money. Yeah. And you keep it. And if you drive less, then you pay less tax, but your rebate stays the same. So there's still the full incentive effect there. But certainly uh, the politics can get complicated, especially on the industry side. You know, in, in Ontario, they give free permits in a number of different ways. You can have permits directly allocated to you uh, rather than according to some formula. Now, so far, those direct allocations have really been limited to uh, facilities like hospitals or university campuses. And so not a lot of distortionary effect there. But you could imagine that uh, through time, uh, lobbying activity might create the risk of more allocations being provided than are economically justifiable. And so I think that, that again, just speaks to the transparency of these initiatives being uh, of paramount concern. Yeah, just I'd like to, um, you know, just maybe conclude we're nearing our end, the end of the time on the optimistic note, and that is that you have these experiments going on in Canada. You also have federalism in the United States. You have commitments yeah. by California. And I think that if you really look at it from a global perspective, I think many people look at the statements that um, the president uh, or a president-elect are making and feel like climate change is going to be dead, et cetera. But in fact, there's lots of things going on. And, and I think the train has left the station among businesses, many governments, uh, states are going to pick up states in the United States, as yep. well as local, uh, as well as cities are going to pick up some slack. And you're still going to see a significant amount of progress on this issue in 2017. Great to have you all joining us. Thank you, Eric. Great to have you in the studio. Trevor, Christopher, thank you very much for joining us on the phone today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank Th you. Thank you both. Uh, great to have you all here. 
For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.